0: Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com.
1: All opinions expressed by TED and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities discussed on this podcast.
0: My guest on today's show is Alan Foreman, the former director of real estate at the Yale Investments Office, where he spent 31 and a half years before retiring last year. For three decades, Alan was one of the core four at Yale, alongside David Swenson, Dean Takahashi, and Tim Sullivan. In his next chapter, he hung a shingle named Blue Orchard Capital and works with real estate managers to help them understand best practices in the industry. In our conversation, Alan shares rare insight into Yale's investment operation and in particular highlights the consistent and essential importance of people and alignment in Yale's strategy. We walk through how he applied the process to the real estate asset class and how he's looking to help the next generation of great real estate managers in his post-Yale endeavors. Before we get going, I recently bought a new iPhone. I'm a bit of a laggard on upgrades, but once my phone battery started running out every few hours, I knew it was time. The Apple ecosystem is a sight to behold. After spending countless hours organizing my apps exactly how I want them on my phone, the chance of incurring switching costs to an Android is next to none. So I went to the Apple Store and followed the instructions. Back up the phone, check. Pick out a new one, check. Restore my settings on the new phone, mostly check. If the transfer is about 90% foolproof, that last 10% is a real doozy. Every time I switch devices, something gets lost in the shuffle. This time, it was my last few months of photos, and you guessed it, my podcast player settings. The photos are lost in the cloud, and I had to follow my favorite podcasts and find the queued episodes I hadn't yet listened to once again. So the next time you buy a device or a family member, colleague, friend, casual acquaintance, or random person you meet in the store is about to buy one, and whether that device is from Apple, Google, Dell, IBM, or even the classic ENIAC, go ahead and let them know about the first podcast they may want to follow if, like me, they lost their storage from their last phone. Thanks so much for spreading the word about Capital Allocators and the second podcast they should follow, Private Equity Deals, and the third, Investment Management Operations, in no particular order, of course. Please enjoy my conversation with Alan Foreman. Alan, great to see you. Good to be here. Why don't you take me back after 30-something years of working at Yale, how you got in the office in the first place?
1: I was at NYU Business School and I wanted to get into the real estate business. It was 1990, very rough time in the real estate business. There was a job posting to work at the Yale Endowment, which was something that most people didn't know much about. Endowment management didn't exist. I interviewed for the job and it took a few months to get through the process. And I picked up and moved to New Haven and was working for some guy named David Swenson that nobody had ever heard of before. The office was not that much bigger than this conference room I'm sitting in now. I was working for Ellen Schumann and Donna Dean, and we started to figure out how to invest Yale's money in real estate. Back in the day, Yale was a direct real estate owner of assets. When I joined, I was put in charge of managing all those assets. And David and Ellen and Donna were pursuing this new model called private equity real estate. And I got the real estate training on the direct asset set, but also got exposure on the ground floor in the private equity real estate business.
0: I'd love to get an understanding of what it was like inside the investment office.
1: We had asset class specialists, but there was also this openness to knowing what was going on in the rest of the office. So there were staff meetings, and you would learn about what's going on in Absolute Return and domestic equity and venture capital. And there were managers coming in, and the office was very open and collegial about meeting with all those different managers. You had the best of both worlds. You got to see the day-to-day in your asset class, and you also got to see the bigger picture Day-to-day in in the asset class was a lot of meetings. Some of the dynamics in the office, young people were included in everything, and there was no segregation of, oh, this is a high-level meeting. So everyone got to see everything. And there was one example, I remember I was in my mid-20s, and there was this controversial issue with this one manager, and we were going to see them. And I said to David, do you want me in this meeting? He goes, of course, you're on the team. It was a very sensitive issue that was being addressed at the time, and I was probably the youngest person in the room by decades. It taught me a lesson about how to keep people engaged and how to make it not just collegial, but you're part of the team and you're part of the group, and that's for good and bad and for sensitive and not sensitive.
0: What was the structure of your basic initial manager meetings?
1: It was stepping way back, trying to understand... How the people ended up where they are at that meeting. What's their education? What's their history? How the partners came together? Why are they doing this? Where do they want to go from there? It was less about the deal. It was more trying to understand the people and really trying to understand what makes them tick. Cause I think at the end of the day, we're all going to have good and bad things happen from time to time. And you want to understand how people are going to respond under trying circumstances. So we tried to spend
0: as much time trying
1: to understand that.
0: How many different meetings do you think you had with a manager?
1: I'd say we'd have two initial meetings trying to understand how they think, how they do what they do, what's the culture of the team and the level of drive and all those intangible things to figure out whether this is somebody that Yale wants to be partners with for a long period of time. And then we'd probably go out on the field and spend a solid 24 hours with the person, probably have dinner, tour assets, maybe two days of asset tours, depending on how close together the assets were. One thing that's nice about real estate is you got to spend a lot of time in the field, kicking the tires, seeing assets, meeting the people. Real estate people like to talk a lot. So there's a lot of sharing and you really get to know somebody when you're spending six, eight, 10 hours in a car driving around looking at assets. And it tells you not just about their investment acumen, but also who they are as people. And then we'd come back and we'd probably spend a lot of time then doing the work at our desk and doing a lot of interaction with the manager. Sometimes that was just over the phone. Obviously today it'd be more Zoom related. You would learn a lot from all the different aspects of that. There are different things to learn at different times. We'd have a pretty good sense after we... Toward assets, whether these people have the general bones of what we're looking for in terms of a partner, and then we would try to fine tune it. We found that the due diligence calls, which is very common underwriting venture firms, wasn't as helpful in the real estate business. It's a less collegial business. On a venture deal, two venture firms can be on the board of a company and they're working together toward the same goal. You got the real estate deal, and the other guy didn't we still did a lot of calls but we tried to understand the dynamic of what people were saying and why and who understood the issues that we cared about obviously there were structuring issues you know early in the day the legal side of it was much more time intensive and in most cases yale was doing the lion's share of the legal work on behalf of the investor group when you're negotiating the small legal terms you're getting a sense of what the partner is like and how they think about things, what they care about, what they don't care about, how available they are, how hard are they working, how responsible. All those things are sort of indications of what they will be like. And you try to piece together a puzzle that is never complete. And there's always a sinking feeling right before you close a deal. Because we were backing pretty early stage people that were, for the most part, unproven. That wasn't As much of a track record as you'd find today. There was nobody with five funds out there.
0: What are the types of characteristics that you found of the people who made great real estate investors?
1: Obviously, we think they're really smart people. They're very driven, sometimes too driven. We weren't the cheapest money out there. There was doing good with the money, what Yale would do with the proceeds and things like that. There was a higher calling than just making money although I think a large part of it was making money. It wasn't the only thing. And creating something that was enduring, that would last a long time and that they could use to grow their platform. The other thing I would say is we really looked for people that could add value. We thought real estate was a pretty inefficient market. And we were looking for people that weren't just buying the asset class. They would have to be an ability to create some alpha there.
0: Where did you find that sweet spot in terms of how hard are people working but maybe there's a point where it's just too much.
1: You definitely want people that are driven and working really hard, but you also want them to have some balance in their life and have the right mindset to do this for decades. And trying to find that right balance was hard. And some people change too. As they have success, they're stepping up and get hungrier. Others step back a little bit. So we really try to understand what drives them? And is that the type of person that we want to be partners with for a long period of time? It's more art than science.
0: How'd you go about finding the opportunities you were looking for?
1: Some of it was relationships. Some of it was we wanted to gain exposure to certain property types. So we might do deeper dives in certain areas. So after 9-11, we thought it would probably be a good time to think about hotels and we did a broad survey of the hotel business to find people that we thought might fit what we're looking for. Sometimes you'd go down paths and there was nobody that fit the bill. Or sometimes there weren't a lot of players in certain property types, or maybe there just weren't enough that made the grade. For whatever reason, we didn't get in early enough to make it happen. So there's a lot of luck that also goes along with it to find the right person at the right time. The one thing I always did, I took every call. My pride at the end of the day was I returned every phone call, usually before I went home that night. I always felt I really liked this business, so I liked talking to a lot of people, but I just felt like you never knew where the next great deal was going to come from. And a lot of the people that we backed early weren't the greatest marketers of themselves. The business wasn't as sophisticated in terms of presentations. You had to look through some of the noise to find the kernel could potentially create a great investment company there because there wasn't placement agents and all this stuff. But we spent a lot of time just meeting with a lot of people and filtering. I mean, the one good thing is you get better at it. You get a lot better, a lot faster. You sort of look at a pitch book in a different way after 10 years of looking at it and you get a sense, is this something In the good pile or the bad pile, pretty quickly, you begin to figure out how to navigate that. And you hopefully have a team around you that is also getting good at that. And you let the younger people figure out how they're going to do that. And that was important for them to figure out how to navigate that process early on, or else they could be spending a lot of time looking at a lot of deals that don't make a lot of
0: sense. What tips did you give the junior people as they were getting up that curve and how to get more efficient at the process?
1: The hardest thing the young people had was getting to know. A lot of the young people were 22, 24 years old. There's some 50-year-old real estate guy on the phone who's very good and very persuasive. And I would tell the young people, you need to figure out your way to get to know quicker because that's your job without offending somebody who's probably old enough to be your father. (laughs) Or mother. And I would encourage them and I would walk through examples of how they can do it. And because managers were very sophisticated about pushing back and responding and they had to learn how to think on their feet. The original ones, you would obviously do it in front of them and you'd show them your way. But everyone needed to develop their own style of how they were going to interact with people. And one thing I worry about in today's world, there's less of that. It's more over email and less the human face-to-face contact, which I think is critical in the real
0: estate business. What are some of the key tenets of your style of saying no?
1: <laughs> One thing I learned from David was there are certain things that managers can't respond to in a way that would change the outcome. And if you could come up with examples where there's nothing they can do about what their structure is, then you have an easy way out. I try to give managers real feedback at time, though. i worry that the LP community sometimes doesn't give enough direct feedback to help these people do their job better. I think that's important to help the business develop. If people are doing something wrong, you can say no in a lot of different ways. Some ways are helpful and some ways are not that helpful.
0: So in a situation like hotels coming out of nine eleven. How do you turn over rocks and trying to understand who the best hotel operators are that you might be able to put into the type of structure that you like investing in?
1: It comes from a lot of different sources. And we actually did a big deal with the Kempton Hotel Group. As an example, we had met with Bill Kempton years before and just never were able to make a deal. And then when things got a lot cheaper, Bill had actually passed away, but the company was still around and we spent some time reintroducing ourselves and understanding what the plan is what they want to do but it's a lot of rabbit holes a lot of just meeting a lot of people the good news is at yale the door is open so you can meet with anybody they take your call that was the amazing thing i could be 25 years old not knowing a thing about real estate and you call the ceo of a company and you said you worked at the yale endowment and the door almost instantaneously opened up at the time i didn't fully probably appreciate how nice that was, but it was a great calling card that we had that we could use.
0: And we did, and we should have used it. That was great. So once you've had this set of meetings, you've been on the ground looking at assets with the manager. How did the decision-making go from there to ultimately making its way into the portfolio?
1: Early on, Dave was very involved, maybe even in first meetings in many cases. Later on, less involved, and we would do most of our homework up front and then bring the manager in to meet David and Dean Takahashi and make sure that they were on board. And then we would write up a memo for our investment committee. As you might imagine, what David recommended to the committee more often than not was approved. So, I mean, David was the big hurdle that we had to get over internally. He was particularly early on very engaged. I mean, he would go on the property tours and things like that.
0: How did the dynamics with the committee change before and after David had written his books?
1: I mean, officially, it didn't change at all. I think David's level of gravitas in the committees was greater. But other than that, the work never changed. David was a big believer in the process, and he was a big believer in not changing the process. Even though we were better at doing it in 2002 than 1992, we needed to go through the process and be rigorous. And when you put something in writing, it exposed the flaws or how good it was. You were forced to do that. Even though you probably weren't learning a lot from the writing process, just the act of putting it on paper was really important. One thing I give David total credit for is he taught me how to write and writing is super important. I went to college, I went to business school, and I learned how to write at the Yale Investments Office, to really write and to be persuasive and to be concise and to say what you mean in as few words as possible and have it held up to scrutiny. And that way, he was a great teacher.
0: What are some of the other ways that you think made the Investments Office at Yale so special? It always
1: comes down to the people and the collegiality. We felt like we were doing some groundbreaking stuff early on and really being a part of something that was really special. It was a close-knit group. We were working really hard. I think everyone really enjoyed what we were doing. It, It was a passion. We thought we were doing some really interesting things. And we were at the early stage of an industry that was developing. I'm not sure we knew it at the time, but we were doing some interesting stuff. Also, David was very focused on the mission of the organization and Yale specifically, whether it was basketball games or financial aid or working with students. And that was fantastic. But at the end of the day, we worked at the investments office and we were working 12 hours a day on investments. And I think one thing that gets a little lost is we're in the investment business and we're spending all of our time thinking about investments. And I think having the passion. For investing is critical to do well in it. And it's nice that you're not making a rich guy richer, you're making Yale richer and they're doing really good things with it. But my day to day job was all about investing and the mission was important in the background, but it wasn't the primary reason of why I really enjoyed the job.
0: As the industry learned more and caught up over the decades you worked at Yale, how did you try to stay ahead?
1: I think each person figures out their own way. My way was to get as close to the managers as possible and to really understand what they're doing and be valuable. So I would not only have some input into what they were doing, but also understand what they're doing and why. I say to the younger people in the office, when we back at an early stage manager, there's a window where you need to be the person that they call when they have an issue. And that window doesn't stay open forever. And you need to take advantage of that window so that When they're 20 years later, you're still the person that they call. And if you miss that window, they'll find somebody else to do that. And I prided myself on having, I think people in the office would say maybe the best relationships with the managers in the office. I think that's a two-edged sword at at times, but I understood the managers really well. I was close with them. I understood what they were doing. I understand their portfolios really well.
0: could speak coherently about what they were doing on each deal. You mentioned you started as a direct owner of the assets. What type of assets did Yale own when you started?
1: Yale owned mainly uh, office and retail assets. They owned one industrial asset and their crown jewel, which was, a I think, about a 5% position in the endowment at the time. was a half interest in 717 Fifth Avenue. The opportunity to purchase the asset was given to Yale by one of Yale's alums who was going to buy it for his own account. And believe it or not, we paid $14 million for a 50% interest in a Fifth Avenue asset,
0: which is mind boggling these days. So, what happened with 717?
1: We were in charge of managing it with IBM Pension Fund, and they were helped out by Equitable. So, Equitable was the asset manager. And we ran the asset, then Equitable decided to sell. Yale had a right of first refusal to match any offer. And to their surprise, when they agreed to sell the deal for, I think, $47 million in the mid-90s, Yale stepped up and matched the offer. So we're in the deal for $60 bucks, and it was almost a 500,000 square foot asset.
0: What do you do with the property from Owning it directly to eventually selling it and getting out of the direct real estate business.
1: When the market improved, we went to sell the deal in the late 90s. So essentially, we marketed the asset for sale. And at the time, the Russia crisis hit in 1998. Despite being under contract, the deal fell through. And Harry Macklow at the time was the buyer And we had come up with a plan to not only sell the building, but sell the dream of redeveloping the retail at the property and let the next guy take that to wherever they wanted to go. And Harry saw the vision. To be honest, he was the only one that saw the vision. But when he couldn't close because he couldn't get financing, we approached Harry and asked him for some advice on how we could do it ourselves. And myself and one of my colleagues went to David and the president of Yale. And we said, we have a plan to redevelop this asset. We have to get it rezoned in New York City next to Trump Tower. And we did. We ripped off the front of the building and expanded it. And Yale probably made $100 million on the redevelopment. It was a great experience for me. I got to learn all aspects of the real estate business. It helps me do my job today, which is you know understanding what our
0: partners are going through and how they do what they do. So every one of those deals in real estate has some interesting story. What was your favorite story with 717?
1: We had leased half of the retail to Hugo Boss, and we had the second half teed up to lease to a German fashion company called Escada. We were on about the one-yard line with a lease, and we got a call from this guy who said, I represent a company that is not doing that well, but they have a new plan for a retail business, and it's called Apple Computer they wanted to open up their first Apple store in our building. And we were very close to wrapping up a deal with someone else. We spoke to Steve Jobs, and he explained his vision for the business, which to be honest, is exactly what turned out to be the case today. And he offered us more money and speed. And we just felt leasing the building to a computer store on Fifth Avenue. You have to realize at the time, there was no iPod, iPad, iPhone. It was a computer store. And we're like, I don't really think Fifth Avenue and Yale needs a computer store next to (laughs) Tiffany and Gucci. So we turned them down. And in hindsight, Harry then did the deal with him at the GM building five, six, seven years later. It was a good ending for everyone.
0: What was the decision process to sell all of the direct real estate and moved into this private equity model?
1: David Swenson was a first principles investor, and he looked at the real estate business in the 80s and said, this doesn't make any sense. And he thought that the fee-based nature of the business, there was no alignment of interest. There was lots of separate accounts. It just wasn't the right model for how he was looking at it with a blank sheet of paper. He looked over at the private equity venture capital business and said, that's a business that is structured in the right way, and we should model our real estate business off of that. And that's what we did. So essentially, right when I joined Yale, Ellen and Donna, and to some extent myself, wrote a strategy paper on how we would transform the portfolio from a directly held to more of a partnership model. And it's funny because we went to all these very impressive Yale professors and asked them, how do we create a portfolio? How do we find the efficient frontier? All these economists like Ibbotson and Stephen Ross and people like that. And they just said, find good people. It was the opposite of the ivory tower mindset. Just go find good people doing really interesting things and set up the right structure and it'll take care of itself that's what we did. We obviously were learning as we were going. And one of the exciting things was David was learning as he was going. So he was shoulder to shoulder to us and we could watch him in action in his early prime.
0: You've got an idea for structure and how to change how real estate asset was delivered to investors. How did that all take hold?
1: You're using your relationships. You're kissing a lot of frogs, trying to see who's out there. And you have to realize at the time, money was really scarce. This is the early 90s. So when you were approaching people with a newfangled idea to do a new model, it wasn't like they had a lot of other options. We were going to write a decent-sized check at the time. That was very appealing to them. They wanted the alignment of interest and the long-term partnership offering that we were
0: providing them. absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. What are some of the nuances in the structure of the partnerships over time that worked well?
1: Well, we're very focused on alignment of interest. So whether it's having a meaningful co-invest, whether it's fees that cover overhead and hopefully aren't a huge profit center. There's one pool of assets, so we're all in it together for better or for worse. Some of these things have been tweaked over time, but the original thesis was a very pure structure. We're getting married. We're in this for the long haul together. We'll eat our own cooking and hopefully it will work. And it was a
0: true sense of partnership. So real estate, you hear about location, location, location. You think about different property types and how that might drive returns. There's a cyclicality to it. How did you think about what assets you were buying alongside of finding the people that you wanted to be partners with?
1: You know, it was very bottom up. It started out with just people. If we didn't get the people right, we didn't worry about what their strategy was. We really focused on people, alignment of interest, and then understanding their strategy too. And we didn't worry about sectors back in the day that we weren't involved with. First of all, there weren't that many sectors back then. I mean, it was literally office, apartments, retail and industrial and lodging. So there weren't as many options to invest. So we thought if we found people in each sector, over time, we would create a diversified portfolio that worked for Yale.
0: How long did it take before you had this fully bolted out real estate portfolio?
1: It took a while because the endowment was growing like a weed. So essentially, even though the portfolio was growing and the manager roster, we couldn't keep up with the growth of the overall endowment. So it probably would have been fully built out sooner had the endowment not grown as much, but it was growing so fast that we were always trying to project where we needed to be and we would never get there. And that was true in all private asset classes. So it was a nice place to be in that there was a lot of capital to play, but there was pressure to grow the portfolio.
0: In situations where there's an opportunity set you'd like to pursue, you're trying to find the right partner. How do you decide if you're not finding the partner, whether you just get exposure to it? Think of it as like a beta to that space while you're waiting compared to just saying, no, unless you line the opportunity with the people, you're just not going to deploy the capital at all. Historically, we took a pass on
1: the sector. If we couldn't find the right group, we just did not pursue the sector. And industrial was a good example where even once the sector became much more interesting and institutional it took us a while to find the right person and we missed some opportunity there i think one thing that's really interesting that's changed in the real estate business that you were getting the beta regardless of the property type so focusing on alpha was all that mattered unfortunately post gfc that's completely flipped on its head so now you have office was in the tank today And industrial has been super hot for the last 10 years. So all of a sudden you've had sectors just go completely in opposite directions and getting the beta would have been really good for those property types, even if you didn't get a lot of alpha. Coming from where we came from, that wasn't the mindset that we had coming out of the GFC, that that was necessarily the way we should play it because that's not what had happened over the past 30 years. And that was a change that was harder to see prospectively.
0: After you've built out these relationships, you're adding a manager into your portfolio. How do you think about the construction of that portfolio within real estate?
1: It's a level of conviction with the manager that you're thinking about. How much conviction do we have about the manager and what's their opportunity set? And you're trying to balance those two things. And you're also trying to maintain your seat at the table. So you try to think about Being tactical, but also being long-term in terms of the relationship and making sure that you have a seat at the table that you want through thick and thin, even if at some times you'd rather have a bigger or smaller seat.
0: How do you balance that in what's thought of, at least over time, as a cyclical sector?
1: It's challenging. You're relying a lot on the manager to make the investment decision of how much they want to buy and how much they want to sell. We relied on that heavily with our alignment of interest. Could we have been a little bit more tactical at times? Maybe. It's hard to judge. But the model was to trust the managers and be informed about what they're doing and make judgments about what they were doing. But if they had demonstrated ability to navigate cycles, that gave us a lot of confidence. That wasn't always easy because as the cycle became longer, different managers behaved differently. Some took a lot of chips off the table and sat on their hands. Others went longer the market. We tried to rely on our managers and also our own judgment to calibrate risk in what they're doing. And really, the more expensive things got, the more we would try to understand what they were doing and how much risk they were taking. And that's when it became challenging. Some things were foreseeable and other things were coming out of left field.
0: Once you built a mature portfolio and you have certain organizations that you've been with for a while, and then you're looking at newer ones, what was your experience in the relative risk return profile of the investments that they're making?
1: Well, there's always the excitement of the younger, newer firm where they're just starting out, the energy level is as high as it can be, they're really excited. And you have to temper that with their unproven. On the other hand, and you're trying to balance those two things. And then you have on the other side the groups that you're more comfortable with that you've known a long period of time. You know what they're all about and what they do. But maybe that spark is just not as bright as it once was. But they're also better at what they do because they've done it for a long period of time. And how do you sort of balance those things? We tried to create a mix of both and. I think you wanted to have a portfolio of up-and-coming potential superstars, and you also wanted to have a bunch of existing guys that were really good at what they did.
0: How would you think about generalists versus specialists?
1: We tended to focus a lot on specialists. I'd say the portfolio was probably 80 to 90% specialists. And we just thought being really good at one thing was the way to go. And a lot of the companies were vertically integrated and they had an ability to add value and do it all themselves. The generalists tended to be a little further away from the assets, but also the flip side is they looked a little bit more at relative value. There was sort of a balance there versus the specialists that knew the asset probably better and the sector better and the market better but also doesn't have the benefit of seeing the bigger picture in the same way that the generalists do. We try to learn from the generalists. If somebody has a choice and they're doing one thing, that's a signal that maybe we should think
0: about. Some of those choices you'd see at times in organizations... That came at it differently. So, you could think about a distressed credit shop that adds real estate or adds mortgages. You think about hedge funds at time that have private allocations that move into real estate. What was your experience when they participated opportunistically in real estate?
1: We didn't invest with a lot of groups that had these really broad platforms. There were some hedge funds that did stuff. There were definitely some real estate firms that tried to do multiple strategies. We tended to move away from them over time as they tried to do different things. Essentially the groups that where we did see some sort of sideline business or adjacent business there wasn't a lot of that in
0: our portfolio. How about international markets?
1: We did do some international One of the smartest things we didn't do is we didn't do any emerging market real estate. And we actually didn't spend any time even looking at it. We just didn't think it was an interesting place to be. We tended to be a value investor. It was all new builds in India and China and Brazil. So we literally didn't do anything. Most importantly, we didn't waste any time spending a lot of resources traveling around the globe. We did do a modest amount of investing in Europe. And I'd say the outcome was mixed. I think our network and all the stuff that we brought to the table in the U.S. was just a little less good in that part of the world. And that probably showed up a little bit in the results. We definitely backed some good people. Timing also matters. And we started that later. So when things did go bad in the GFC, there was less history there of good deals before the lesser deals showed up. But there were still some good outcomes in Europe.
0: How do you think about where to participate in the capital stack of a deal?
1: So essentially, Yale has always just been an equity investor. Unless it's an opportunistic thing within an equity structure, we tended to only invest in the equity and we only wanted the inflation protection. We wanted the upside and we thought our managers could add a lot of value and that would inert to the benefit of the equity holders.
0: As you were in your last couple of years looking at opportunities, how did you decide where to spend your time on different opportunity sets?
1: When we decided where we wanted to play, I think it was a combination of looking at our portfolio, seeing where maybe there were some holes in it, what we're seeing out in the market where maybe there's some interesting stuff going on, usually because it was some distress where we thought maybe we should be taking a harder look at this and finding, A, we'd have a bigger seat at the table during a distress period and B, hopefully with all these new managers, it's great to get in when things are cheap and have them get their firm off to a good first start. It was still a people-based focus, but we definitely looked at different sectors and tried to figure out where we could find the next interesting opportunity. And I'd say we were a little slow on some of these nichier sectors where these non-traditional real estate sectors like student housing and self-storage, part of that was the people in the business by definition almost didn't have a lot of experience and there wasn't a lot of institutional players. And we were trying to Find people that were just as good as the other people in the rest of the portfolio, which made it challenging early on to find the best and the brightest when they were early. And that's where I think having these relative multi strategy shops is very helpful because they actually help educate us to understand oh, there's these other sectors over here. They think it's relatively attractive. Maybe we can do that in a bigger way somewhere else with someone else once we understand the opportunity a little bit better.
0: As you invested alongside of organizations that you may have first put early capital in, and then they expanded and grew over time, what are some of those aspects of building the business the right way that you saw that you found yourself giving certain kind of advice repeatedly to some of the managers?
1: I say this to a lot of our managers. You're managing three or four different things at once. You're managing a portfolio of assets, you're managing a fund, you're managing an investment management business, and you're managing a team. And you have to manage all of these things in a way that works for all the different constituents. And it's really hard and it's really complicated. The guy who got to the top of a lot of these real estate firms is a deal guy. And he's not a organizational guy and he's not an investment management guy in the same way that maybe in other asset classes. So helping them think through these types of issues that they should be thinking about, or even just raising them so they start thinking about creating an organization that can handle all these different
0: constituencies that need to be addressed. Did you find over time that a person or small group of people that start the organization that are focused on deals can evolve to being able to build all those roles? It's all over the map.
1: And I think that's the interesting part about the real estate business. Each one is different. Each one has their strengths and their weaknesses and their blind spots. And they're all trying to figure this out in some different parts of the cycle of where they need to be. And to me, that's what's really interesting about the business. There were some that the managers were more on autopilot because they were at a phase of their company's evolution where they didn't need a lot of oversight and others where they were early stage, or maybe they were reinventing themselves where they needed more advice. And that was a nice thing to work on it, where you had a range of groups. The goal was always to get them closer to autopilot. And you'd start out with a young 32-year-old that's creating a firm. And over time, they hopefully get to a place where they need less oversight. Maybe one of the mistakes I made early in my career is just because less oversight is needed, There still need oversight. Yale still needs to be on top of things. When a manager's shooting the lights out, you still need to make sure that they stay on the
0: straight and narrow. If you looked at your more recent decades at Yale, what are the aspects of what did change in the way you went about investing?
1: I just think we tried to be a little bit more involved in the real estate and trying to be a sounding board for the investment decisions. We never had discretion. We never had legal authority, but we really wanted to understand what they were doing and how they were doing it and why they were doing things that they were doing. And also, I'd say our role changed as I got older in terms of being more involved in helping the manager manage their business and helping them think through things that will affect their business long term. That's a part of the business that I really enjoyed. I found as I got older, I was more of a peer with these general partners. So I was viewed as more of an equal and I had seen a lot. I really enjoyed being more involved strategically helping them think about the business as
0: opposed to just the specific deals. What was one of those partnerships that worked really well for you?
1: Well, one of the early ones was a group called Douglas Emmett, and they're a public company now, very successful. This was back in the early to mid-90s, and they were pursuing massive distress in Los Angeles. One example that always resonates with me, when we were underwriting some of their early deals and trying to understand how they look for opportunity, things were so bad in California back then that we underwrote no residual to the assets in at least one deal. It was not even a land residual. We assume that these assets just went away at the end of the lease term because things were so bad, it's almost impossible to sort of get your head around it today. But back then, that was not a completely far-fetched outcome that was going to happen, and we would underwrite deals. Is this a reasonable, risk-adjusted return, assuming the world comes to an end? And then if it doesn't, we'll do great. I think they had nine funds, they all did very well, and then they went public, and they did a great job for themselves and for Yale.
0: In a situation like that, The exit of going public, how did that play out for you as an investor? I'm coming from the lens of knowing that David wasn't particularly fond of any outside ownership.
1: Once one of our partners goes public, it's the beginning of the exit of the relationship. It may not happen overnight. We're usually a very large shareholder of the entity. Sometimes we're on the board So exiting is slow, but there's no more opportunity to invest on a private basis. It's just you own your shares. In most cases, the going public route is the end of the investment relationship over time. And that's fine. It was a great run with a Douglas Emmett. We all made a lot of money. If they ever decide to go private, we'll think about maybe there's something to do again. And that's the way we operate. Some worked overtime for decades and some worked overtime for shorter windows and then they went elsewhere. Douglas Emmett was a good example that was, was a shorter relationship that didn't go on forever. And there are others like the Shorenstein Company was one of Yale's early relationships where it was a great partnership for 30 years. And we've navigated markets with them and helped them and worked with them. And it's just a very rewarding relationship in all senses of the world.
0: When you have a relationship in the one hand that lasts for 30 years and in others don't last for as long, what happens that tends to lose your attention and interest?
1: It could be a lot of different things. It could be the manager decides to do something different. Like in the example of Kempton, they sold their management company and they were no longer an operating company and that changed how they did things. Hard to say. At the time, they thought this was a good thing. It didn't fit exactly what Yale's model was. Others decided to do other things. They wanted to broaden their product offering and things like that. Obviously, track record is a huge piece of this. And the better they did, that's a big wind at their back. And the worse they did, more questions were asked. One thing that David was really good about, and this taught me a lot, was looking around corners and looking at the people. And you know, everyone's going to have a slump or an issue. And how do they respond What's the opportunity going forward as a result of the mistake? Was it a mistake by the firm? Was it the market? So we dug in a lot on underperformers to understand whether we want to buy more when it's cheap, like a value investor, or do you want to exit because it wasn't a great place to be. There was one manager that got off to a really rough start in the Bay Area And their investment period was up and they were only about half invested. And Dave stepped up to the plate and said, let's extend this investment period. And they've just hit the ball out of the park. That's hard to do. It's really hard to do.
0: In that example, what were some of the factors that led you to step up as opposed to walk away, which is probably the more consensus driven approach at the time?
1: I think it was the people, it was the investment opportunity trying to understand, was that an unforced error or or was that a market thing that is understandable and and they still have what it takes to turn the ship
0: around? So after a long time in the investment office, you recently have retired, stepped away. Love to hear your thinking of why that time had come.
1: It was funny because I said to David at my 30th review, I've done this for 30 years. I'm not sure I want to wake up in 10 more years and say I've done this for 40 years. It's been a great run. I want to see what else is out there. I don't know if I want to do something else. And he was very nice about it. He said, why don't you explore for a little while and see what you want to do? And I came back to him and I said, I think doing this for 10 more years is probably not exactly what I want. So I decided to leave soon thereafter. He asked me to stick around for a little while longer. Unfortunately, during that window, he passed away. So I ended up sticking around for another year sort of help out the transition. I used to go to these annual meetings and I was the youngest kid in the room. And now I go to the annual meetings and I was the oldest guy in the room. That didn't feel great. I felt a lot of my peers were aging out of the business or becoming CIOs. I found myself gravitating toward the GPs anyway, because they were more of my peer group. So I spent the next year really thinking about what I want to do with this 30 years of experience.
0: And where has that brought you?
1: What I really like doing is working with the general partners. And so I'm working with a bunch of general partners, hoping to work with uh, some younger up and coming groups and help them become the next great new firm. Really enjoying that piece of the business and being a strategic advisor and helping them navigate all the stuff that I've seen over the last 30 years in a way that hopefully will enable them to get where they want to go a little faster, a little safer, and fewer bumps in the road.
0: What are some of the things that come up in those conversations?
1: What I try to do is try to ask them where do you want to go? Where do you want this firm to go? What are your goals and objectives? My goal is to help you achieve your goals. It's not about me. I want to be in the background. I want to help you achieve whatever you want to achieve and getting people to really think about what they want and how they want to get there. And that can be a lot of different things. It could be lifestyle-wise. It could be wealth-wise. And also acknowledging where they have shortcomings. If they do well, I'll do well. And it's the same thing with when we found partners at Yale. If the partner did well, we structured up a deal that Yale did well. And that's the win-win that we're always trying to create in a world that's not always about win-wins.
0: Well, Alan, I want to ask you a couple of closing questions before I let you go. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I would say golf and skiing. What's your biggest pet peeve? My biggest pet peeve on the investment
1: side is lack of disclosure Just being open and honest about what the issues are, and as opposed to having to dig in and trying to find them. What investment
0: mistake have you made that you'd never make again?
1: I think the biggest mistake I made at Yale over the years was managers that had some strategy drift in their portfolio. And because they had done very well in a different strategy, we gave them a little bit of too much of the benefit of the doubt. And I wish we had just dug in a little bit more. Not all strategy drift is bad,
0: but I'd say the bigger mistakes were people took their eye off the ball. Which two people had the biggest impact on your professional life?
1: I would have to say David and Ellen Schumann. Ellen was my boss for my first eight, ten years in the office, and she was the one that I worked very closely with day to day. Obviously, David was on top of that. Ellen is still a mentor to me today. I'm on a board with her. I have lunch with her all the time, and it's been 33 years since she hired me. Hitching my wagon to Ellen and David was a good thing and what pays dividends today still.
0: What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you?
1: I would say just perseverance and hard work, working hard, doing the business, and just being present and diligent is a huge portion of this business. And I think finding something that you're passionate about makes all that much easier.
0: All right, Alan, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life?
1: Work with people that you really like. And that's one of my cardinal rules of my new business is I'm only going to work with people I like and enjoy. And that's what I did most of the time at Yale and it served
0: me really well. Alan, thanks so much for sharing your long experience in the business and exciting new venture. Thanks, Ted. Thanks for listening to the show. To learn more, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can join our mailing list, access past shows, learn about our gatherings, and sign up for premium content, including podcast transcripts, my investment portfolio, and a lot more. Have a good one, and see you next time.